0: One of the interesting things is the fact that zip codes matter. There was such a stark disparity. There was a 25 year difference in life expectancy based upon zip codes that were just a matter of two miles away. And so when you look at, that's what what leads us into the social determinants of health. So you may have a spectrum on national averages, you're looking like perhaps maybe about 10 to 15 year difference in longevity, depending upon gender and years of life lived. But that doesn't even take into account the health span that is truncated even at an earlier
1: age. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 54 of season four, number 249 overall. You know, America is living sicker and dying younger than other major countries in the world. So why is it, why is it that our affluent nation is struggling so mightily to take care of its own? Where are we going wrong This is a conversation that will continue today on the exam room when Dr. Columbus Batiste joins the program. He is a renowned cardiologist who is not only diagnosing the problem, but he is formulating a prescription to get our health back on track. Now consider this. In 2019, only three other countries in the entire world reported more deaths from cardiovascular disease than the U.S. In order, they are China, India, and Russia. Also that year, worldwide, nearly 19 million people died from heart disease. And here's the eye-opening stat. Of those 19 million, 6 million were between the ages of 30 and 70. Let that sink in, between the ages of 30 and 70, meaning, in fact, we are living sicker and dying younger. So today we are going to be looking at who is most at risk, which segment of the population is most likely to keep fueling this deadly trend, and more importantly, what can we do about it? The fact of the matter is this. No one is immune from the effects of any chronic disease. But there are things that we can do to protect ourselves. And there are things that we can do that will put our health in jeopardy. What will you decide? And for those who are most at risk, let's join with Dr. Batiste and do our best to lend a helping hand. Continuing the march toward the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine 2021 edition here on the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Today's guest is an interventional cardiologist and a health and a lifestyle advocate. He is world famous in the plant-based community and soon I would venture to say the entire medical community because his message is that great, it is that healthy. You can find him on Instagram, HealthyHeartDoc. And that tells you really all that you need to know. Dr. Columbus Batiste, so I'm stoked that you're taking part in ICNM again this year. And your topic is Reclaiming Our Food Heritage to Reclaim Our Health. That is a powerful title. And I would love it if we could spend the next few minutes kind of just discussing uh, racial disparities in health and just kind of start like right at the top, that 30,000 foot view. Um, Talk to us about the demographics of health in the United States, because as we've seen, uh, it is anything but equal right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, first of all, thank you. It's always an honor to be on here with you. And I'll tell you, it's even a greater honor to to speak at ICNM this, this upcoming year. You know, one of the things that I always like to kind of start when we have this conversation is, you know, the reality of it is, is that America is living sicker and dying sooner than other industrialized countries. That when we look at racial demographics, they are a small microcosm of our greater whole. We're only as good or as powerful or as strong as the weakest link. And so we see America in general, that we're living sick or dying sooner across nearly every chronic disease demographic. We look at heart disease, we look at diabetes, we look at longevity compared to other industrialized countries of our wealth and our power and our prestige and our education. And so when we start to break it down and begin the process of looking at the indigenous population, right? We look at uh, at African-Americans, we find out that even that these subgroups are living sicker and dying sooner. That there is a that they lead. I always like to kind of uh, reframe the conversation instead of saying underrepresented, or I I, I say we're overrepresented in terms of death and in, in 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 mayhem. We're overrepresented as it relates to diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, but not just having those diseases, but dying sooner from those diseases. And this is one of the things that 2020 really brought to surface was the fact that this is happening. And it wasn't new to 2020. This has been going on for decades, decades on end.
1: Well, let's talk specifically now about African Americans, dig deeper into those statistics a little bit. Uh, f- right now, what is the average life expectancy for African Americans? And how does that compare to other races?
0: Well, you know, one of the things is that that, you know, when we talk about from a racial demographic standpoint, it really it's a wide spectrum. You have different educational levels. You have um, people of African descent who may uh, uh, hail directly from Africa or they may hail from the Caribbean or they may hail from uh, Europe. And so you'll have different demographics. But one of the interesting things is that that the fact that zip codes matter. So a lot of great work was done that was led by the likes of Tony Aiton and began to really demarcate the disparities that exist within zip codes. I was recently in in New Orleans speaking for Essence, and one of the things as I was researching was that there was such a stark disparity. There was a 25-year difference in life expectancy based upon zip codes that were just a matter of two miles away. And so when you look at that's what what leads us into the social determinants of health. So you may have a spectrum on national averages. You're looking like perhaps maybe about 10 to 15 year difference in longevity, depending upon gender um, as well, you know, in years of life lived. But that doesn't even take into account the health span that is is truncated even an earlier age. And so that dependence on medical on medications and on procedures even begins a lot earlier.
1: Wow. So I'm assuming then, I mean, you were just talking about life expectancy with that research then, but I would assume that the same could hold true for heart disease, for cancer, for diabetes, all of these chronic illnesses that factor so dramatically into life expectancy.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's what we see is we're seeing like a doubling that you're more inclined to, to be diagnosed in the numbers ranging from 30 to 50 percent likelihood of suffering a heart attack at a younger age of dying from a heart attack of less likely to receive treatment for a heart attack, which seems mind boggling. So one of the things I'm leading within my institution um, with quality is we're starting to take a look and seeing, well, I don't think that we give disparate care Right, But we don't know until we begin the process of looking. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm honored to be a part of an organization that's willing to kind of peel beneath the layers and start to look and see, you know what, how are we doing precisely? How are we delivering our care based on gender, based on orientation, based on ethnicity as it relates to cardiovascular care, as it relates to other um, areas there? And so that's extremely important, I think, as healthcare providers is to separate perception from reality. And that requires us to really dig in and look.
1: All right. Well, I want to dig into this and and see if you can just kind of walk us through the differing levels of care that a person might have, right? So let's say um, somebody like me, okay, walks into a cardiologist's office. Uh, has the resources to be there, can afford the treatment, uh, needs to have a procedure, right? How would that differ versus somebody who's living below that poverty level, right? Living in one of those zip codes you were talking about where life expectancy is so much shorter, and I would assume access to quality medical care is so much less. How would their experience really differ from the time that even just getting to the doctor's office and then going into the door? Like, Can you help paint that picture?
0: Yeah. You know, well, what we do is we assess and never forget inside of training. I was um, training a good friend of mine was a colleague of mine and he, he was a Middle Eastern. And I remember we were having this discussion. It was somewhere around um, 9-11 and so forth. And we talked about really stereotyping. And he kind of went on to say, listen, I'm in favor of stereotyping because stereotyping, I think it can kind of help to identify. He said, we do this every single day when we assess people and what their level of risk is, but that those subconscious Um, uh, assessments, what are also known as implicit bias, can sometimes be detrimental. So if you walk in and you're disheveled, I always give the example, and I'm going to change the script a little bit. I remember walking in, I was rushed, as I am always. I have meetings and clinic and procedures, and so I was rushed. And so they add this patient onto my schedule. I was double booked, and I was running behind. I walk in, I see this Caucasian male who smelled of cigarette smoke. He was disheveled. His nail beds were dirty. His his uh, his pants legs were 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 grimy and he smelled, as I mentioned, of cigarette smoke. I remember going in. I looked through his chart briefly before walking in. I saw that he had a multitude of issues going on. And I walked in and I always describe this story because I'm not I'm an imperfect person. Right. I strive to be better than what I I was yesterday. And so I walked in rushed and I said, you know what? Listen, sir. Good morning. You're going. I said and I jumped right in. You're going to need to have surgery. You're going to need to have this procedure done. I need to give you these medications. And as I'm going through the spiel, I said, this is why I'm observing. This is this. This is putting you at risk. And I kind of just went through essentially dictating to him and interrogating him and, and giving a dissertation. And, and he paused and he said, Doc, is there anything else I can do? And I remember being stopped in my tracks for a moment as I looked at him and I looked back at myself and I said, I still, though, didn't get out my mode." So I said, "Yeah, okay. Well, sure. Yeah, there's other things you can do." I said, "You can change your diet. You can quit smoking." I, and I said, "You can you can give up meat, cheese." I said, "Go ahead and adopt a whole food, plant based diet. Minimal oils, no sugar, no salt." I said, I "Go." And I threw. There was no elevator pitch. There was no little nuances to try and you know engender him, you know, get him uh, ingrained into the process there at all. And he looked up at me, and he said, "Okay." He said, "Okay." I judged this man when I walked in the door, based upon prior experiences or prior perceptions, thinking that he was not going to be willing to make a change. I put that on him and I was unwilling to even give him the time that he needed in order to adopt the change initially. I fortunately changed courses and he had phenomenal success and he's taught me the same thing, which is no judgment. It's a judgment free zone when someone walks in my office every patient every time deserves the same intention, the same effort in order to kind of give them. And I think that this is something that's pervasive throughout medicine. And there may be some groups um, who may be more inclined to experience situations like that based upon the perception that people may have by lack of of consistent interaction with individuals of that group, whether or not it's their sexual orientation, whether or not it's their, their ethnicity. And so when you encounter that, and doctors may not do it. They make an assumption. You can't afford the medication. I don't believe the pain because this group complains all the time. I don't think they're not they are missing their appointments, but they're missing their appointments because of the fact that they can't get off from work or because the the fact the bus uh, was delayed. And so now they're marked as being uh, noncompliant when reality of it is, is that if we stop for a moment and we look at what's the rationale, because as physicians, we may have bankers hours when other people are at working or they can't come into the classes to support them. And we're telling them foods that they're unfamiliar with that don't resonate with them to eat. Um, and so we have to, to exhibit something that's a rarity out there and it's called empathy. Empathy is like the lost neutralizer, right? That can bridge the gap between all of us as human beings.
1: Dude that is some profound that that last 2 minutes that was some profound talking right there um so What I'm thinking about is uh, a conversation that I had recently with another doctor, and she was talking about the implicit bias that a lot of physicians display toward people who are struggling with their weight. And to me, that really struck me, not just from a personal level, but from the fact that it's, what, three out of four people in this country nearly are either overweight or obese. So then would that essentially mean then that three quarters of all medical patients in the United States, are facing some sort of implicit bias?
0: Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. You know, and once again, putting on full display, I think that that becomes you make an assumption that this was a choice. You make an assumption that someone doesn't care about themselves. You make an assumption erroneously that someone is not going to be compliant because they can't be compliant enough to transform their own lives. Right. And so, all these subconscious layers build up in a manifest in terms of our action. And what is our action? It's, it's very apathetic that we will just go ahead and prescribe the medications already. The health system is disrupted, or I should say it's dysfunctional in the fact that doctors have such a minimal time, healthcare providers, a minimal time with patients, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then on top of it, now you're 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 coming in with these biases and you just what's the easiest low-hanging fruit? Medications procedures and tests, right? Having a conversation to explain, to get at the heart of what's driving it, maybe the lack of forgiveness, the emotional trauma, the the issues that are there, the maybe the social determinants of health, the environment that they live in, their family, lack of support, whatever it may be, there's no time for that, that people will will ascribe to it. So what do they do? They give you a pill, they give you a procedure, and they send you all on your way.
1: Mm. Well, let's so let's try to flip the script on that for, for some doctors uh, who may be watching this right now or listening to this right now, right? So you, you gave that one example of of the patient who kind of blew your mind, uh, was ready to listen when you didn't think that they were. Uh, I, I'm sure that that wasn't the only time that that has happened. I'm sure that specifically when it comes to overweight patients, you've probably worked with some who have had some heart issues who were willing to listen. And surprisingly, maybe to your surprise, maybe to not, they did make the change, right? So let's try to end that. Stigma a little bit. Can you give us some other yes. examples?
0: Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think that when I have seen individuals, I'll tell you the most the most marked examples I have are people that I didn't even necessarily directly take care of that when I've been doing cooking classes and I'll have someone and we're going through our spiel and we're doing, I, I was pre-COVID, of course, everything. I think we're gonna define this world as pre and post-COVID, you know, PC and PCPC, PC, right? That's that's the world. So pre, pre-COVID, I was doing my thing, right? I had developed this cooking class called Cooking Alternative to Health, the cath lab. And so we would go through, i give my little spiel and we'd cook up food. And I never forget the pe- individuals coming through who purported that they had lost 40, 50, 60 pounds without me ever doing anything except encouraging them, right? And just that, you know, not knowing what someone's going to do on their own when they leave, but to see someone go and take on that mantle. Um, And then I've had other individuals inside my social connections, outside of religious organizations, where, you know, I'm I'm always happy to help people. And so they're like, hey, you know, I'll tell you the most, (laughs) I'll tell you, this comes to memory. I didn't think about this when you first asked the question. I gave a lecture. So it was an iteration of my slave food um, lecture that I do in conjunction with my colleague, Eric Walsh. And so I did this for a Canadian company of all companies. Right. And so uh, it was a group to predominantly African-American, but there were some Caucasians in there. So Caucasian individuals and managers in there. And So what's interesting is that the Caucasian manager reached out to me, the exec. Um, afterwards and said, hey, you know, I really, man, I was just so impressed by what you said. And I need to make these changes. He applied everything I said to him because it does apply to everyone. And so in that moment, we began this process of me just encouraging him. This man, he talked about how his mentation improved. He talked about how he lost nearly 50 pounds. And he was the smallest he had been in tw- over 20 years. He talked about the energy, now, of course, when I speak to the process, it's never just solely about food because it's bigger than food. It's about really the complete package of sleep and exercise and love and food and intimacy and, 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 and all of these spiritualities, the meditation, whatever it is, gratitude, the humor, the laughing. And so we begin this process and he was so profoundly appreciative, right? And all I did simply was encourage him. Through a couple of recipes, sent them over to PCRM and 21 Day Kickstart and, and just was there for him, showing time, showing that he mattered, right? And seeing this transformation take place in somebody is phenomenal for me. It's something that is just, it recharges my battery and it motivates me to stay out there doing what it is that we are all trying to do, which is to make people better, live better, healthier lives.
1: Let's look at this now from another angle. So we talked about Mm -hmm. the implicit bias that doctors have, essentially giving up on somebody before the conversation even starts. But then I think a lot of times we just, as people, kind of give up on ourselves before we even start as well. So if you look at the genetic factor of that, right, my father had heart disease uh my grandfather had heart and both of my grandfathers had heart disease uh diabetes cancer like you name it so if you have all of that in your lineage it's very easy for you to assume that that too is going to be your fate and i bring this up because on your social media recently uh you you gave this great quote uh it said something uh, to the effect of the greatest gift to give your kids is the gift of knowledge and the gift of health so that really is Indeed, a stark contrast to what it is that we believe as far as our own health destinies. You're teaching yes. your kids that just because your grandfather had heart disease, just because your grandfather, or your grandmother had diabetes, that doesn't mean that it has to be you. That's pretty powerful, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's not new information. I mean, I think this this extends throughout the eons. Every parent, you want your kids to be better than you. I mean, what parent, most parents, the majority, unless there's some other issues going on with that individual, want their parents to be better. I tell my kids all the time, I want you to be smarter. I want you to be more successful. I want you to be faster. To my son, I want you to be bigger. All these things like that. I encourage them. And I said, our actions dictate a large portion of it and that my circumstances don't have to dictate your circumstances. And that's one of the things that science is beginning has begun to really evolve and explain through the process of epigenetics, through the process, we all understand that socialization, nature versus nurture, which one is really stimulating us more? Is it our DNA or is it our cookbooks, our recipes? We've heard these adages time and time again, but the truth be told, it is the key. But what I try and focus with individuals, because food is something that's very sensitive. It's very cultural. And we pass these things on, we pass the habits, the way in which we interact. I know this at times, I may get quiet, if I'm frustrated, I may be quiet. And I notice my son has the same tendency. He didn't just naturally get this. He observed this in his father. So I'm very conscious of like, okay, Columbus, how are you responding in conflict? How, what type of example are you setting to your son, to your daughter, in terms of the way in which you communicate? what types of words are you use, using? Are they empowering words? Are they encouraging words? Are they discouraging words? And so I'm not perfect, but I think about those things because I realize that this will have a domino effect on my fut- the future generation from my kids to their kids. And so I want folks to be able to focus on resiliency, that there is resiliency in all of our heritage. There's resiliency in all of our cultures. And we have to pick out the refinement, the refined things, the things that are going to help shape us and be better than what we were yesterday. And that's one of the keys. All
1: right. And if if people embraced that resiliency and embraced and understood epigenetics, right? And embraced the fact that they have a lot more control over their health destiny than they possibly could ever have imagined. What would that mean for, you know, you as a cardiologist, as a cardiologist and all of your colleagues, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it would mean that we'd have to kind of shift our specialty, right? So instead of me taking care of chronic disease, we would now be dealing with more traumas, more perhaps um, some degree of some infectious issues, uh, accidents, things of those natures would be more the focus of urgent health care as opposed to chronic disease management. Listen, we're never going to wipe out chronic disease 100%. No one is deceptive to thinking that because there's always variables that are there. But we know that because of the stark amount that we can reduce that, That now our our domestic product uh, nationally improves because we're not spending billions of dollars on unnecessary treatments, unnecessary therapies, that we can focus our attention and the money on education, on uh, uh, on infrastructure that's there to build a better country, a better community. And that's really what the goal is, is for us to be better than what we were before, our environment, um, our community as a whole.
1: I want to preview uh, your your lecture at uh, ICNM in just a second, but I want to ask you a fun question because you, you yeah. mentioned your son just a second ago and uh, family, you know, when you talk about eating and, and family, that can always be, you know, kind of a captivating conversation. So um, yeah. I also, when I was uh, getting ready to talk to you this morning, spent some time thumbing through your Instagram. And I noticed that not too terribly long ago, you and your wife celebrated your twenty three uh, your 23rd anniversary. So congratulations, my friend. Thank um, you. Thank you. But I am curious, who, you know, how did that conversation go when you first approached her with the idea of eating a plant-based diet? Because my <laughs> conversation with my wife was an all-timer. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it it so so. First of all, thank you for that. My wife is is a saint for dealing with me for twenty three <laughs> years. Okay, I, I'm not an easy guy to deal with at all, and so she deals with all of my nuances and does it well and loves me tremendously. And so she's very support, extremely supportive woman. Um, I've always, when I started making that transition, you know, it was interesting. We had an interesting conversation and I, I, she was okay with the transition towards eating whole food plant-based. She wasn't at, I didn't really shake her too much or rock her too much. As I began to withdraw things of like the cheeses and all the the sweets I used to indulge in on a regular basis and things of that nature. Um, it did, make things a little awkward when we go out to eat with others and, and so forth for her. I think the biggest thing is when I decide I was at one point, I went all raw, I, I juiced, I did various things like that in my journey throughout the entirety of my journey that she stopped in one moment. She was like, what is wrong with you? She was, what are you doing now? She was like, can't you live in the moment and be happy and everything else like that? You have to delay all forms of grat- gratification, you know, and so forth. And, and then so it was hilarious. It was it was hilarious. And I said, You're talking to me like if I'm doing drugs or I'm drinking alcohol or anything else like that. I said, I'm just trying to be a better person, right? You know, I'm trying to, to live as healthily as I can. And uh and so that was a joke. But but to her in her defense, she has come along and she will refer people to me. She's just like, you know what? You need to talk to my husband. You need to talk to my husband. You're trying to lose weight or you having this issue. Talk to him. He can help you out. He has a plan. He can set you up with people or give you books. Um so she's been very supportive, but that initial conversation was funny. I don't want to put her I'm listen, I'm trying to make the year 24 chuck, okay? I'm not I'm not trying to throw her under under the bus and get myself in too much trouble.
1: No, no, no. I would not put you in a jackpot. <laughs> not on this show, my friend. No, th- this uh-huh. guy, come on. No, no, no. I'm about promoting peace and harmony. Come yes. on. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, so another thing that I uh, caught this morning uh, was uh, you had the opportunity to meet one of your heroes not that long ago, uh, Dr. David Satcher, right? So he was the yeah. first African-American Surgeon General. He was the first African-American head of the CDC, uh, So often when we meet our idols, it doesn't live up to expectations, man. But in this picture, man, you were just beaming getting the opportunity to stand yeah. next to him.
0: Yeah. Listen, I appreciate those who've laid the, the groundwork for all of us, right? So I'm a big history fan, a history buff. And I realize that I pale in comparison to individuals, these giants who came before me and were the first. You know, as I think about, I like to try and think of myself as a good clinician, And by look at the history of cardiology where people could diagnose a a disorder by looking across the room and I realize I pale in comparison. And I look at the stature of someone like David Satcher and many others who came before. I it, it thrills me, and I feel it's an honor just to be in their presence. And I want to honor them and thank them for what they've they've given to lay the foundation for me to be here. And so, you know, it was interesting. We were giving we were we were pre COVID once again that pre versus post. We were flying around the country giving these talks for slave food conversation. We were at a church institution um, back south, and he was there. And I remember my colleague had worked with him before years ago that I give a lecture with. And um, when we met him, I was just like, wow, you know, I can't believe I'm giving this talk on disparities and on nutrition and on plant-based nutrition uh, to him and essentially or to him and the rest of the audience that was there. And he was very kind and very receptive um, in terms of listening to the information, the way in which we formed it and was very supportive. So uh, it, it was quite an honor.
1: That's outstanding, man. Uh, I'm so happy that you were able to have that opportunity. Um, Before I let you go, I need to ask you about your presentation coming up at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, uh, Reclaiming Our Food Heritage to Reclaim Our Health. What are you, I mean, I can assume based off of the title uh, that uh, I know exactly where you're going to be going with this, but uh, give us a quick preview if you wouldn't mind.
0: Yeah, you know, listen, I'm being teamed up with the star in this whole thing is not me. It's going to be Brian Terry. Right. An incredible chef, culinary chef and historian who's going to be um, cooking an incredible meal. And my job is to set the stage for and set the plate, so to speak, for his food preparation. And so one of the things we want to talk about, just like I alluded to, is that there are healthy components in all of our cultures right, of the foods. And so we want to focus on those resiliency, those things that are are valuable in our culture and, and that's what I want us to, to focus on. So this study, what we're or this lecture, what we're gonna be doing is we're walking through for African Americans, really looking at we reflect on soul food and, and we think about the negative connotations of that. But I want to focus on the resiliency in terms of the gardens that were grown, in terms of the foods that were uh, picked and, and the green leafy vegetables and the, the foods from Africa, just as I could do if I was speaking to a, a, a Latin population or if I was speaking to you know a European population, speaking about the variable aspects of the health promoting foods that are there and that we have to accentuate those in our efforts. And so I think that it will resonate with those who are tuning in, the fact that we are framing a story, the history, and this resiliency of, of how, we've, how food has been used and crafted, but how it can be powerful for us. The story that we all are familiar with, but just refining it. You know, you know Chuck, one of the things I oftentimes say, and I may have said this to you before, is that I believe this message of, of wellness is like a superhero movie. You know, you have Batman, you have Wonder Woman, you have Superman, and they're all good versus evil. And we understand that in the end, good is going to win. There's going to be some conflict unless there's a part two or six or whatever it is, right? There may be a love interest, but eventually it's going to end, but the stories are different and they appeal to different people, but it's the same premise. And so that's really what the point of this particular, which I was so pleased with the invitation to speak in this context, is that yes, although it's targeting the African-American communities, it's applicable to every community on the earth. And that's one of the things that I were hopeful to, to uh, explore and encourage folks to make this change uh, coming up in the future.
1: I love how welcoming your message is just for everybody is you really do give the impression that you sincerely just want to take everybody by the hand and bring them along on this health journey of yours and, and march everybody toward a healthier future, man. And I just respect the, I, I respect the hell out of you for that. I'll just go ahead and say that. So, I mean, thank you for everything that it is that you're doing.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You know, it's, we all have our why we all have our origin story, He's going back to that that superhero kind of theory, our origin story and, and whether or not it's um, that drives us along the pathway. And so I have my origin story of lack of knowledge, lack of, of intention, and it, and, it, and it resulted in some family uh, tragedies and, and observing even some patients. And I've just come to the place in my life and the comfort in who I am of saying, listen, this needs to be a message of health and wellness and embracing and love to everyone. And yes, I may target just as a, in a cardiologist, I'm I want everyone to, to stymie their heart disease. But yes, I'm gonna focus my attention on those acute heart attacks because those are who are in tremendous jeopardy. So yes, I frame my message targeting communities at risk that are overrepresented, but the, the message is for everyone. <laughs> it's for everyone, you know. So I appreciate you as always having me on the show and your support and your example, right? That's the key your example, you're a living example. And that's more powerful than any talking MD head or the things that I'm doing because people want to see an example and that's what you exude. And so thank you for your example um, and your shining light in what you do in this particular realm.
1: My friend, coming from you, that means the world. So thank you very much for those kind words. And Dr. Columbus Batiste, thank you so much again for your time today. I greatly appreciate it, my friend.
0: Always a pleasure.
1: Good seeing you. A quick follow-up to what it was we were discussing at the beginning of the show. You know, the countries that had the highest number of deaths from cardiovascular disease. Well, here now are the countries that had the fewest. This same paper published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology states that those healthy honors go to France, Peru, and Japan the latter should come as no surprise given what we know from all of the research that's being done on Blue Zones. Blue Zones, of course, are those areas of the world where people are living the longest. And people in Okinawa, Japan, have been taking the most number of trips around the sun for quite a while now. And Dan Buettner, who's leading a lot of the Blue Zone research, says that their diet is a huge factor. It's a diet that has far less fast food, far less high-fat food, but far more healthy grains, whole foods, and yes, carbohydrates. Before we check health headlines at the Exam Room News Desk, I wanted to let you know that this episode of the Exam Room is brought to you by Switch, an online cooking community that will help you eat more plants and learn to cook with confidence. Learning to cook is one of the fastest and most enjoyable ways to start eating healthier, and that is exactly why Switch was created. To help you improve your health and eat more plants by building basic cooking skills in a fully personalized and supportive online community. Connect with other members, share tips, and access all important skill-building lessons, all tailored to your individual needs and preferences. It's a matter of your taste, my friend. So if improving your health through food is on your to-do list, visit Switch.com. That's Switch without the T to unlock your free membership today. Let's check health headlines at the exam room news desk. A clear trend is developing, one that is worrying the meat industry. Higher prices and greater interest in healthier options are combining now to shrink their customer base. Sales of meat at grocery stores in the U.S. are down 12% over the last year, according to Bloomberg. And that trend is also extending to some of the world's most meat-eating countries, including Argentina, where sales are down 4% year over year. And in Europe, all of Europe, beef sales are expected to fall by 1% this year. Meanwhile, sales of meat alternatives continued to skyrocket, up 70% since 2011, and it is important to note that that upward mobility was being displayed years before the COVID-19 pandemic, and now it is only accelerating the shift away from animal protein. Dr. Batiste is one of the more than two dozen of the world's leading experts who will be speaking at this year's International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, which is one of the biggest health conferences of the year. And we would love for you to join us. It's coming up July 15th through the 17th. All of these leading voices coming together to present the latest fact and evidence-based nutrition science. We're talking about credible information here, not some random blog that you found on Google. This is the real deal for you to raise your health IQ. And there is a special discount available just for exam room listeners. Use promo code exam room to save $50. That's exam room all one word, to save $50 off the cost of registration and lock in three days of the latest science on nutrition, lifestyle, longevity, and health. And it is completely online this year, meaning you can join us from anywhere in the entire world, even Okinawa, Japan. You can find a full list of speakers and presentation topics at pcrm.org slash ICNM. And don't forget to register using the promo code exam room, one word, to save $50. And you can find a link with all of the pertinent information in the episode notes. And I really do hope to see you there. ICNM is maybe my favorite three days of the year. You learn so much in just a 72-hour span. It is incredible how much information is packed into three days. So pcrm.org slash ICNM promo code exam room to save $50, and you can find a link with that promo code in the episode notes. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Columbus Batiste. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening, and remember, as always, keep it plant-based.